it's Betsy Orton with the Dickey Foundation, and you're listening to Dickey's Doing Good, where we tell good stories about good people doing good things in our community. My guest today is Randy Aguilar. Randy has been with the Dallas Police Association for more than 10 years working with member relations and member services. Before that, he spent more than 13 years with Dallas Police Department, working in the Northeast Division as patrol officer and field trainer. He's also passionate about helping first responders through his work with Assist the Officer Foundation. Thanks so much for joining me, Randy. How are you doing, Betsy? It's great <laughs> to be here. For those folks who don't know you quite as well as I do, tell us about yourself, your law enforcement career, your work with DPA, and how you came to be where you are now. Oh, I guess, you know, I'll start from the beginning. Um, I grew up in San Antonio. Um, I've been here in Dallas since I was 23. I was going to school in San Antonio. DPD was in San Antonio um, recruiting and I was taking criminal justice classes and one of my instructors said, hey, you should probably take the test, go through the process and see how uh, it goes for experience. And I started, I met somebody at one hotel for the first round of the application process. The next thing you know, I was getting hired and I moved up here in 97. Um, the first couple of weeks, the first week I lived here, I didn't have an apartment. I was the first night in Dallas. I spent the night in Methodist Central in a guest room. My, I had an uncle that happened to have a stroke that Christmas, oh. and my aunt and him were in the Methodist Central guest room. She was there. They lived in Houston, so I had a place to stay. So my my uh, journey started off pretty crazily. Um, so that's how I got there. So uh, I got out of the academy, went and worked Southwest Patrol for several years. I promoted, then I went to Northeast and was working in patrol there. Um, I worked in the first disruption unit out of downtown and we went pretty much to hot spots all over the city working on crime complaints, drug complaints type of things. And then uh, the end, then I spent 2008, I spent the year at the academy as a class advisor for a recruit class. And that was probably one of the best jobs I had because there's probably 30 plus kids in there and you get to mentor them and tell them experiences and go through all the training again with them. So that was probably one of the best jobs I've ever had on the department. It was a lot of fun. Um, and I had, you know, I counted all those little, all those recruits as my kids. And now a lot of them here have probably been on as long as me, if not longer now, and have been promoted into good position. So I'm pretty proud of that. So in 2007, I got involved with the DPA. Uh, it was April of 2007 and we were doing some political interviews with uh, people running for uh, council. One of them, the first pe person I got to sit on interview was Dwayne Carraway. And so we know where he's at now, but uh, it, it was, and since then, right after that, I, be, I was a Sergeant at Arms for the DPA. And then probably the next time there was an election, I was the uh, Northeast director on the, on the board here at the DPA. So that's how I got involved with the DPA. So you did spend some time as Dallas police uh, officer. So what was the best thing about being part of law enforcement for you? You know, I really enjoyed helping people. Um, you know, sometimes dealing with certain people, you don't, there's really, you don't get any joy out of that, but there are certain times when you get to really help people and you see that they're struggling with whatever situation they got in their lives, you know, going to calls and arresting people or, family violence type things is normal, but sometimes you get to see some actual difference getting made. Um, you know, or, or you help someone get out of situations. 
And one, probably one of the most fun nights I ever had helping people, and it was different because you were really just helping people and not responding to calls. Man, it was probably 2001, 2002, there was a big ice storm, and we actually had to put snow chains on the tires of the cars. And Do we even have those in Dallas? Um, yeah, I think they still have because they had them then. I didn't know they did. So we, and we were able to go around and you know, find people stuck on the side of the road and push them off the ice to get going and moving, you know, and it was, I mean, it was just actually going and, and helping people. You help people on calls, whatever, but this was actually, you know, when they see the police showing up, it's not because they did anything wrong. It's actually, oh, I'm stuck here. Someone's come to help me. So that was some good things. Um, but helping, helping people, I mean, it was, uh, you know, it's very cliche or odd for some people to say, you know, when people say officers became officers to help people, it's true. In my case, it was, you know, it was, um, I needed a job, but um, helping people was something I've always enjoyed doing. So, Well, and with your work at DPA, you've really, you're able to help people a lot um, in that position as well. Yeah. One of the things, so the DPA, it's, you know, we've been around since uh, 1959 and when it started, it was some old guys got together because they were wanting to protect officers from city management, from the department, from just, you know, any gross things or terminating officers without any cause. They wanted to make sure that officers were protected. So um, this, this place has been established long before I got here and they've had a great reputation. So, you know, being able to help officers has been, you know, something I've taken advantage of, of since I wasn't helping officers, uh, citizens anymore, helping officers stay mentally healthy and, and, and taking care of their needs has been a great joy of mine. Um, it's been good. So. Well, and with your work with DPA, I mean, that, that's, that's your day job, but you've talked to me that you, you actually personally have been able to, to help other officers because you did leave DPD and, and are helping with DPA now and really being able to help other officers who might have similar stories. Yeah. One of the, back in 1999, the DPA started the Assist the Officer Foundation and it's our nonprofit that helps officers in times of catastrophic needs and events, uh, deaths in the line of duty, um, just getting hurt on the job, um, getting hurt off the job. Um, we've had a lot of officers over the years have heart attacks, cancer, anything and everything that they've had. Uh, we've had some tornadoes destroy homes. So the Assisted Officer Foundation has been able to help financial assistance to these guys. Um, and one of the great things that I've been here 10 years now and the amount of change and growth that I've been able to witness, it's night and day difference. It's, it's, we've grown exponentially just because we do so much more. Um, and when I meet people and I talk about my time here, and if you talk to any Dallas officers, you're probably gonna, that are on now, they're gonna talk about the events of 7-7, uh, 2016. And that's kind of a, uh, that was kind of a, a day when things got reset on how we do things here. We're a small organization that we had a limited budget and we worked hard to raise money or, you know, we had people that helped us. Um, 
Dallas uh, Blue uh, Dallas Foundation. You know, they, they've been big supporters of ours. There's other groups that have been, but we were limited on our exposure just because we didn't have a big marketing and advertising budget. Because we're, you know, we we try to get every penny that comes in, make sure it goes out to help out officers. Um, but when we're watching CNN and Fox national news and you know, all the national news networks and I'm seeing our ATO logo and DPA logo, I mean, that was advertising that we did not expect, not necessarily wanted, but it, you know, put our brand out there and, and, and we've grown so much from then. Um, you know, cause after other than nine 11, that, uh, was a, probably the, the deadliest day for police officers in our nation's history. So it was a lot of uh, exposure that we got from that. So from seems, it seems like from then, from that day on, we've just changed the way we do everything. Um, because of that, we've been able to help out other departments in the, in the city, in the Metroplex, we helped them before, but it, gave us so much more experience on how to handle things better from uh, helping Richardson. Um, you know, they lost an officer, uh, Fort Worth has lost some officers, you know, just other departments around the, the Metroplex, they've lost people. And, you know, we've, you know, we've had experience in how to deal with that, that it's, you know, helped us help them kind of paying it forward. So uh, it's, it's been a great experience. I mean, you all are so good about helping these families during kind of their time of tragedy. And, you know, particularly in the past year and a half, it, it's it's been a tragic year on, on many fronts. Um, and, you know, a lot of times our law enforcement is is misunderstood and miscategorized. And what what is it that you think is the most misunderstood thing about law enforcement? Um, we're not they're not robots. They're human beings. They have they 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 make mistakes They're They you know, I think society expects them to be perfect, but they're not. They're going to make mistakes. Um, they have feelings and emotions. You, you know, um, you can't turn off these things. I know when I was an officer, I did. I do know that I was different when I was in uniform, and I knew when I took it off that I would. You know, I I try not to take things home with me, um, but. You know, just because someone's putting a uniform on doesn't mean they're any different than the person that's, you know, cleaning teeth for somebody, teaching someone how to read or um, running a restaurant or even someone that's doing um, criminal stuff, selling drugs. You know, some people just it's a choice people make to do whatever profession or job they got. So um, some people get into their situations for whatever reason. So. I think the big, the biggest thing is I think people, and I know that we should be better and be do the best that we can, but you know we're human beings. They're going to make mistakes. They have emotion. Um, how these guys can turn it off and on, it amazes me. And sometimes they don't do a very good job of turning it off and on because sometimes things get eternalized in our normal meter gets eroded so much to where we we as police may not realize that oh we're so desensitized to abuse and negativity that we don't realize how negative we've become it's um i mean for so so many people you're dealing with them on what's probably one of the worst days of their lives yeah yeah and you know and it's one of those things you know on an you go an eight hour day and you just get 
dumped on. One of the things I don't like that people say, oh, you don't know what that officer was going through in that day. I think that's a, uh, yeah, you don't know, but that's still not an excuse for some of the things officers do. So, and some of them handle things better, but I think that's a easy a cop out that I don't like when people say, oh, you don't know what they were going through on that day, because a lot of times they're not, you know, it's, it's not a good excuse. Um, because you don't know what's been going on for 20 years in their life as a police officer. You know, there's a, uh, I know years ago, the department implemented a, uh, um, a bid a patrol bid to where you could leave the stations. But before that it was hard to leave a station. So there's some guys that work, Southeast Dallas, South Dallas, that I think they got beat down for so many years of being in probably one of the worst parts of town and not being able to get out that they became very jaded and negative just because when you're around bad, ugly things, you know, you probably absorb a lot of that, not doing bad, ugly things, but it's just, it just, it just affects the um, the way you deal with things. I remember I spent my first five years down working Southwest Oak Cliff and parts of Dallas, Southwest Dallas. It was fun, it was good, but that's all I knew. And I would go up to Northeast Dallas, I'm in Lake Highlands, Casa Lynn, I'm like, oh my God, wow, people like us here, it's different. <laughs> it's just a different thing. So when you get stuck in a, a certain part of town in, I think that can have a real negative influence on officers. So um, that was a good thing. Officers being able to get a move around and see different, as good as that was, it's also hurt the department a little bit, but it's it's been a good thing to help mentally for some officers to get out of just certain bad areas and not being around so much going from junk to junk to junk type calls to where you know, you go to a different part of town, you'll go to a call, but then you also go to a call where someone's very appreciative of you. Not saying the people in the bad areas aren't appreciative. It's just, you just sometimes get beat down and you. Well, and you're, you're definitely internalizing some of that. I mean, if you're seeing it day in, day out, I mean, and there's a lot of talk about um, trauma-informed policing and the whole idea that it also has to do with the trauma that our police officers are experiencing. And to your point, with officers, you know, that are getting called to drug houses and shootings and assaults on a daily basis, that that does take its toll. It takes a toll and we, and, and, and everyone copes with things differently. There's some people that go home and, and you know they're able to turn it off and on. It's it's no big deal. But there's, you know, people talk about uh, post traumatic stress. You know, I think it happens to officers so much that it's it is it, it becomes their new normal, which is another term I hate. But it becomes normalized, and they just get so used to it they don't realize how much trauma they've gone through. Um, one of the things that uh, since seven seven that's grown so much for. The Assisi Officer Foundation is our confidential counseling program. And I believe that roughly 2003, 2004 is when that started. And years ago, the mentality was, oh, you went to this here, let's go drink a beer, rub some dirt on it and move on. Uh, which that has turned out to not probably be the most healthy thing to do. Um, but officers are, and officers are, I think counseling sometimes can have a stigma that it's not a positive thing, it's a negative thing. And uh, another big problem that officers has is they don't like asking for help. 
so going to these things it's um they don't want to expose themselves they're very guarded not trusting everybody so uh getting in counseling you know if you've got a good counselor you open up and you'll talk about certain things you don't want to talk about and and it helps officer but i think some officers resist that but over the past decade and the past five years we have more and more officers that are taking advantage of this to help get better because man probably past five six years things have changed so much in policing from the the uh, incident in um in st louis with michael brown when with that happening you know that's just changed policing how officers are viewed um with the protests and riots and the abuse that these officers have taken from people yelling at them not appreciating them um i think officers have taken advantage of that and that after what happened in 7-7 here we've had a lot of officers that were seeing things that they're not used to seeing you know it's normal for us to see somebody in not a uniform shot dead but when you see a uniform and see the face or someone you work with someone you know it's it it changed things it changes things a lot um i fortunately wasn't working that night i was here at the dpa but i didn't see some of the stuff that was out there on the streets on how these officers lost their lives and um and i know that had very big effect on officers and how they've moved forward i've known people that have gotten out of patrol since then have retired since then because it was it took a toll on them seeing the things that happened so so if you were talking to a young person who was interested in going into law enforcement and you said things have changed so much over the past five or ten years what what would you tell them you know that's one of the things i think i don't know what i would tell them I'm glad I don't have to tell them anything. People, I know one of the things that's changed over the past two decades and a half that I've been involved with police is people don't want to be police officers anymore. There's still a few that want to be, um, which is great. And I tell them, come do it. You know, it's probably the best, it's the best job I've ever had because it's, when you get to help people and make a difference, I think it's a very gratifying gratifying, satisfying thing when you know you get to make a difference and see a difference. Um, but it's it's different. I have been an officer for 10 years. I would love to make the money again, but I don't know if I would have to deal with how people are now. Technology's changed so much that with the cameras in the cars, body cameras, everyone's cell phone, recording everything you do that you have to be. I'm not saying that we weren't perfect then, but we have to be more perfect. And sometimes that puts a lot of stress on us. Um, so if someone's going to be a cop, just be prepared. You know, if I'm telling them, you know, if this is what you want to do, you know, expect to see the worst in people, but also expect to, you know, probably find the best in you because people are not going to appreciate you like you should be. There'll be your family and friends, the, you know, your brothers and sisters in uniform, they're going to appreciate you and support you, but it's not going to be all the uh, gifts and rainbows and stuff that you might be expecting to happen. It's not fun. It's tough. 
Um, and you got to want to do it. You can't do it half-ass. It's it's a it's a all-in type thing because you do anything, you know, half-hearted. You're not going to get the best out of it. So um, do it. Give it a shot. Be prepared to not be appreciated. Um, but it's a fun job, and it's it's a calling. So. It certainly is. I mean, yes, the, the work that the police officers do, y'all are so brave in, in doing that. And so you were with the department for 13 years and now with DPA. And uh, for those of you all listening, uh, he's not young enough to be retired. <laughs> uh, can, can, can you talk to me about that? Yeah. Um, you know, I got involved with the DPA back in 2008. I was on the board of directors and... 2009, I was, uh, we were hosting a, a conference here at the DPA and that night driving home, I drank too much and I had a wreck and I got arrested for DWI. Um, it's a tough thing because people come in here and see me. It's like, Hey, are you retired? I'm like, no, no. Why aren't you an officer anymore? I'm like, uh, even right now, um, Telling this story is always tough because people, I think, expect police officers to be perfect, but it goes back to, hey, we make mistakes too. Um, and I made a mistake that night. That happened in 2009. Um, one of the worst things that happened, an officer had to, it happened in Plano, an officer had to call my wife at the time and say, hey, I'm here with your husband. Um, and break that news to her. Um, it was, it was something I had to deal with. Uh, I, I mean, I did it. I owned it. Um, I, I wound up getting fired about a little over a year later. I did not go to trial. I probably could have, but I did not want to have to get on the stand and beat up a police officer for that was doing their job for something that I did. So I didn't want to, in DWIs, you pretty much are attacking the police officer that made the arrest and I didn't want to do that. Um, it was tough. It wasn't easy. I, I, uh, I, I, I dealt with it fine. Um, I got fired. My daughter was wanted about the time it happened. Um, so there was things that I was able to use to keep myself distracted. I had a temporary job before, right after this, right after I got fired and um, I planned on going back to school. Um, I had a bunch of college hours. When I got out of high school, I went to A&M. I had too much fun there. So I went back to San Antonio and I was uh, didn't know what it was going to be. And I was taking criminal justice classes and that's when Dallas was down there recruiting, but I got hired so quickly. I didn't get to finish. So I'd always worked on going back to school and work on, you know, taking hours, but I didn't have anything in mind. Um, but right when, uh, January of 2011, I came to eat lunch with, uh, the past presidents, two of the past presidents, and uh, at the time, the chairman of the assistant officer, 
we happened to have a lunch. It was a Wednesday. And I told them I'm going back to school and they said, oh, that's good. You know, because I mean, these guys were my friends and they felt guilty because I think every single one of them probably knew that if the if things were different or their luck was worse, it could have been them in my position um, with the DWI. And I uh, had lunch with them. And then that Thursday morning, the treasurer at the time is uh, retired. Uh, it was Ron Pinkston, who eventually became president. He gave me a call and said, hey, Tara didn't come in. Do you want to come down here and work? I said, well, you know, I'm getting ready to go back to school. He goes, that's fine. We'll work around your hours. And I was like, all right. Came down here and I started working. My main job was answering the phone and selling T-shirts and hats. <laughs> um, and I started going back to school. They, I was... Uh, Went back to Collin to finish out my associates. And then I, probably about a year later, I transferred to UTD and they had a, the degree program that I started with there it was a public affairs, which is working for non, with nonprofit management type things. And uh, that school, and the school was great. My experience was great. Um, and it kind of got me down the path where I'm going now. I, I didn't ever plan on being here at the DPA for 10 years. Um, but I think I'm here for a reason. Um, it was tough sitting here at the desk. Then people would walk in and they Hey, didn't you get fired? Or, Hey, where, Oh, I didn't know you're working here now. And then there, I always see question marks on top of people's faces. Like, you know, How'd you get this job here on the department? It's like, well, no, I work for the DPA now. I'm not a police officer anymore. So that was always hard kind of, uh, even though there's 3000 plus officers, you think everyone might know who you are, but there's a great majority that don't know who the hell you are or they know you, but they don't know you got fired. So that was always a tough thing to where I had to tell people. Um, but being here was therapy for me, um, getting to talk to people. Um, and since that time, because of my mistake, the DPA's done some things that have helped officers. Uh, back in this was early 2011, we had a, uh, a safe transportation program that uh, we provided cab rides home for officers that they'd go out. Um, it was nothing that they were supposed to be planning themselves around, but if they happened to go out, drink too much, we gave them uh, these little key fobs that they could call a cowboy cab. Because this was before Uber. This was way before Uber <laughs> and Lyft. And, um, you know, they could get a ride home because, you know, I was leaving an event here. And so there was a lot of guilt, you know, that people felt bad because, you know, not that officers hadn't been arrested for DW before, but I think it's sometimes when things hit a little closer to home. You know, you want to try to fix that thing. So uh, we were—that's what we were doing, and it was a good program. It was getting used, um, but it's kind of faded away. We still give out the key fobs, but I don't think it gets used as much. I think because now officers have Uber and Lyft, where it's easy to just push buttons and you know get on your phone, get an app, and come in here. So um, and now we still had officers get arrested for DWI. Um, right after mine happened, there was an officer that called me up on the phone and said, "Hey." I didn't know him. He was a young, he was younger officer than me. And he said, be prepared, do some things. You're going to find out who your friends are. Um, and he eventually got fired, but it, you know, that phone call had a 
profound effect on me. So since then, if they're members or if I have a way to contact them, I've called several officers to talk to them and say, hey, hang in there. I tell them the same thing. You're gonna find out who your friends are. I tell them to prepare for the worst, hope for the best. Um, you know, be prepared for what's gonna happen. Um, you know, your face is going to be on the news, you know, it's not going to be pretty. Um, and a lot of those officers have been very appreciative. Um, it's made me feel better, uh, knowing that I can try to pass my experience on to someone out there that said, Hey, this has happened. Um, and not that it's happened. A lot, but it's, it's, you know, I've, like I said, I can't even tell you how many people I've talked to. Um, and if I've missed anybody, I apologize. Um, but you and I were talking. A DWI is is the kind of thing. If I have three glasses of wine, I will be over 0 0.08, yeah, which is over the legal limit. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of people don't realize that. Um, you know, it, it's one of those things too. Um, when I tell the story, and I think, hey, people realize, you know, if I if I was, I, I I would like to think I had a pretty decent reputation as an officer, and then you know, I just you know chose poorly that night and made some bad choices. And, you know, that was me. I, you know, I can't blame anybody else but myself. And I spent a long time working on getting forgiveness from certain people. My, my, my wife at the time, who's now my ex-wife, um, and my, my parents and family and my friends, my close friends, you know, uh, I never, I felt bad for the DPA because, you know, I was a board member here um, but eventually probably, it was probably November, 2012, something happened in my life. And I was like, man, I need to, I, I realized I needed to forgive myself and not worry about getting forgiveness from everybody else. And that was a, a, a light bulb moment for me that, you know, kind of changed things. Um, shortly after that, I got divorced. I know, um, I know that had a big effect on my wife. She was very supportive at the time, but I know we probably should have worked on things better that we missed out on when it comes to um, talking about what happened. Some things, some things transitioned so easily for me that it was never really an issue. But there was a lot of uh, resentment that got built up that I caused, and you know I, I don't blame her for that. Um, you know, but it was something I, you know, like I said, I did it, I caused it, and. Um, but you did say that your family felt a sense of relief. Yeah, one of the, my sister, right after I was fired, she'd called and said, hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm sad that you're not a cop anymore, but I'm very relieved. Even my ex-wife kind of said the same thing. You know, I don't have to worry about calling you and you're not answering and worrying about why isn't he answering type thing. Um, August 2003, my sister was having a, wedding shower down in San Antonio. My ex at the time, she was down there and we just got to Northeast and I wound up getting in a fight with some kid and me and my partner, it was, it was, it was a big fight. He got bit. I got hit in the head. I had to get some stitches in my forehead. And I remember calling and I was like, man, should I call her? And I was like, eh, I did because if she came home and then I saw stitches in my forehead, I think I would have been in trouble for not calling. So I said like, ah, you know, Hey, just, you know, and then she wound up driving home. So 
you know, not having to put them through that anxiety anymore has been a big relief for me and for them. And knowing that these spouses go through that, um, something that I'm real proud of that I've helped over the past few years since 7-7, um, it was right after my divorce, we had some a couple of wives come in that were prior military wives and said, hey, is there any kind of spouses group, you know, like a auxiliary type thing? It's like, no. And they wanted to start one. So they were working with the president at the time trying to get that going. And uh, this one girl, she was she was great. Uh, they've since left the department. She would always call and I'd give her a hard time on the phone, you know, like, who's this again? And um, and the spouses group that started with a couple of ladies wanting to get together um, has grown into a big support group um, that they're there to help each other out uh, in their, um, they've been great. They've done some great things. Um, and they started before seven, seven. And I think, I think people would have come together, but we kind of had the ground, the, the, the roots were already planted and seeds planted for that spouses group, but they got so much better after seven, seven, because they were to help each other out because there was, you know, you know, it could have been anybody's, husband or spouse or wife at the time that that happened. So, um, that's something that didn't have when I was going on, but it's, a, you know, it's one of those things that since that's happened, I think these spouses have a good outlet now just to talk and get together and say, Hey, how do you deal with your husband when he comes home or either your, they call them their Leo's or law enforcement when they come home and they just throw their gun belt on the ground, you know, like, what do you got to do? So it's funny when I've seen they're watching this, I always wonder, man, did my ex think these things, same things. And, um, and I'd sit there and hear them tell these stories and complain about things. And I laughed like, Oh, I'm so glad I don't have to deal with that anymore. But, <laughs> um, it's, it's been a good thing. So, well, and it seems like this position with DPA and what you do with assist the officer, you're, you're very uniquely qualified for it. Having been on the other side, but then also, as you said, working with the spouses and hearing what they're hearing. So you, you really, you see know, both sides. the thing is, you know, I believe, I believe things happen for a reason that I'm in this position because it's God's will. Cops are very, suspicious of everyone because of what they deal with. So they don't want to trust anybody. Um, and I'm a familiar face because I wore a uniform. I've dealt with the same type of things they've done and doing. And it's probably different now, but still, you know, there's that commonality, that familiarity that, hey, this is somebody I can trust. So I, I would like to think I've been able to take advantage of that trust and rapport that I've built up with these officers. If I were smart, I probably would have gone back to school and become a counselor. Maybe that would help, you know, officers just as much. But there's still time. Yeah, uh -huh. <laughs> I don't want more debt. Um, you know, but I, I really do know that seeing a familiar face when they walk in here, I know the guys I work with now, the 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 e board of the Dallas Police Association, they're full time cops. The DPA has three full time employees. Me. Uh, Jennifer Brown and Vicki White, and we all handle different things here. So, and they give us a lot of trust and autonomy to make decisions, which I think is great. So in, in any kind of job, if you can make, you're able to make decisions, it's, it's a good thing. You're not having to worry about making a phone call, but you're from my thing. So they, there's a lot of trust there. And I think 
um, having me at the desk because we're here in the Cedars. There's homeless people or weirdos that always walk up here. So, you know, I do have some cop skills that I look at and see who's who and what's what. And that helps out. So I know that they feel good that if they're not here, I can do things. And, um, you know, like I said, the, the, both the girls that work here, their husbands are police officers. So, um, you know, I, I hope that I give them a little sense of, uh, their husband's sense of ease knowing that their wives aren't here because, you know, in the past years we've had protesters out in front of our stuff. We've had people paint all over our building, um, all kinds of just not friendly stuff going on. So I know that, uh, um, you know, like I said, there's, that the guys I work for have, you know, a lot of trust here, knowing that I'm here. Thanks so much for tuning into the first part of my interview with Randy Aguilar with the Dallas Police Association. Please tune in next week for part two of our interview. If you want more information about the Dickey Foundation, feel free to visit thedickeyfoundation.org. And if you want more information about some of our great owners and the great stories they're doing, please visit dickies.com. We look forward to seeing you next week where we'll continue sharing the good stories of good people doing good things in our community.